Father in heaven, this we thank you for this good morning. We thank you for the opportunity to be in worship. We thank you for Sundays. We've come now, Father, to the place in the service where we're hungry to hear the word. We ask God that you would help us. You help us to hear, help us to see the truth, help us, God, to understand it. We pray that our hearts and our minds would connect with what you were saying. God, we remember the words of Jesus and his temptations. That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Father, we're here. We're ready. We open your word now. We ask for you to speak to us. We recall, Father, that the Bible says, your word says that faith comes from hearing. And so in hearing now, may the power of the Holy Spirit give us faith. We ask for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would please turn in the Bible to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we're going to keep moving right along. It's page 926, I believe, in a pew Bible. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the pew Bible there in front of you, those black Bibles. Mark chapter 3, page 926. I often have people say to me when they're upset, Josh, will God forgive me of that? Many, many times in my life, as a minister, somebody has come to me upset, convicted, broken, worried, scared, confused about some sin or sins that are going on in their lives or in their life, and they're wondering, will God forgive me of this? Sometimes it's because they don't know uh, much at all about God and His grace and mercy and, and, and the forgiveness that He offers. And so they're just feeling the, the real uh, weight and burden and guilt that there is of sin. And so they're just wondering, is there forgiveness for me? Usually this person does not know the forgiveness of God. And so they're basically asking, is there forgiveness with God? Yet other times, and almost in a completely different setting, there are people who know better and are upset at themselves that they've done this. They know that they should not have done something. They had thought about it before. They know what God says about it, and yet they've still done it. And so it's not um, that they don't know that God forgives. It's, I don't think God will forgive me. I knew better. I know I shouldn't have done it. We've dealt with this before type of a thing. And as you know, when you're trying to help someone or counsel someone or even comfort somebody... It's not easy. And ultimately, all the words and, and comfort and understanding in the world cannot do what God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can do. Give us peace in knowing that our sins are forgiven. Our passage today in Mark chapter 3 deals specifically with this. Can sins be forgiven? If so, which ones? I want you to look with me at Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20. Now, last week we stopped at verse 19, where we covered the 12 apostles. So today I want us to look at, starting in verse 20, 
And we're going to go all the way through verse 30. Then he went home, that's Jesus, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Where we're at here in the Gospel of Mark, this is a great passage, and we're intrigued by it. There's some heavy stuff here that we want to get to today, and I want to cover it. But at the same time, through the flow of the, of the story of Mark's Gospel, we, we see this as a fascinating part of the, of, the, of the story, of the narrative, if you will. I want to give you three simple points today. Number one, confusion about Jesus. Confusion about Jesus. Number two, confidence with Jesus. And number three, condemnation without Jesus. Confusion about Jesus, confidence with Jesus, and lastly, condemnation without Jesus. So we begin with the confusion about Jesus. Right after Jesus had called the twelve apostles, right after, you look at verse 13, he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him, and now he's about to send them out with the authority that he has. This is a great passage. We saw it last week. This is Jesus forming the team, if you will, the mission team, if you will, that he's going to use to go and spread the good news of the word of God to the entire world. Last week we talked about how brilliant it is in Jesus' scheme of multiplication that he didn't need a ton of people. He wasn't looking for thousands he said give me a few select people I don't call the qualified I qualify the called I will prepare them I will disciple them then I will send them out through the power of the Holy Spirit they will do the work that I have taught them to do and we will reach the nations with the good news of salvation in Jesus it's an awesome passage and we have we have that and then our, our passage today picks up in verse 20 that he went home Jesus goes home after that, and the crowd gathers again, and so many people that he could not even eat, or they could not even eat. And we've seen this already in the Gospel of Mark many times. People are now flocking to Jesus. They're hearing of his authoritative teaching. Nobody teaches like him. They're hearing that he can heal anybody. He can do miracles. Demons are scared of him. Demons obey him. Sick people are healed. Jesus is fascinating. He has already spoken that he has the power to forgive sins. They've already identified that this guy is saying he's God. He's claiming to be God because he is forgiving sins. You remember when they came through the roof with the paralyzed man and Jesus said, your sins are forgiven? And they said, well, why do you say your sins are forgiven? Who do you think you are, God? And he said, well, which is easier? You want me to tell him to get up and walk? Okay, I'll tell him to get up and walk. 
walk. He says, man, get up and walk and take your And he goes home. Jesus has modeled that if you want me to do a miracle and heal somebody, I'll do that. You want me to forgive their sins, then I can do that. And this is what he does. So crowds are gathered, and our passage in verse 20 picks up there again. And, and the crowds are there so that they could not even eat. And then Mark gives us this verse, verse 21, that's an interesting comment to us. It says, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. So it almost gives you this picture of the family thinking, well, what's going on with Jesus? A, a, a crowd again. They go and they get him. They seize him. And they make this statement, he is out of his mind. Now, I know that in your household, you often uh, accuse people of being out of their mind, right? But to think that Jesus is out of his mind is for you to be out of your mind. This is my first point here today, that there is a lot of confusion about Jesus. A lot of confusion in the world about God. And what is a big flaw of mine, and perhaps of yours, I think so, is that when we don't understand things, instead of thinking that we're the ones with the problem, we say they're the ones with the problem. Right? It is a tendency of prideful people to think that we're right and think that the other people are wrong. Like, this is the way we've always done it. What is your problem? And yet, when it comes to Jesus, God Almighty, our Lord and Savior, to have uh, some, some misunderstanding or some confusion about Him, or to think that He's out of His mind, is an error. Why not first thing, I don't understand this, I'm out of my mind. There's a problem with me. And with the Bible's teaching that we are sinful and that there's nobody that does good and that there's no one who seeks for God and that in our hearts we are prideful and sinful and that we are prone to uh, sin against God, then it ought not to be our first thought that we're the ones that write or we know what's best or, or follow your own heart or this type of stuff. It ought to be, I need to be fueled, I need to be informed, I need to be taught by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. I need God to teach me that so that I'm not confused about the things of Jesus. And here we see them saying, he is out of his mind. If there's anybody in the story that's out of their mind, it's certainly not Jesus. But it goes a little bit further. Immediately after that, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem, they were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. So now you have some different people. You have his family saying he's out of his mind, but then you have the scribes, these, these people who write for the religious leaders, you have these people saying that he is Filled with Satan. Beelzebub is just a name of Satan. What a, what a statement. We, we may call people jerks or idiots or foolish or whatever like you like to call people, perhaps worse than those words, whatever you like to call people, but I don't often hear people calling people the devil. I don't hear many people say, man, he, he's just of the devil. He, he, he is a, he, he's of Satan. I don't hear people say that much. That's a large indictment. That, that, that's strong. And yet this is what they're saying about Jesus. Let me remind you that we have nowhere on record of Jesus ever doing anything wrong. Jesus never sinned. Jesus is love. Jesus is holiness in the flesh. Jesus is righteousness lived out. Jesus is full, complete obedience to the holy law of God. And yet, these people are saying, he's of the devil. Can I warn you here today 
that in your confusion about understanding the things of God, you would not assume that you're right and put the blame on somebody else, especially Jesus himself? Would you humble yourself here today under the mighty hand of God and recognize that there's a lot of things that you don't know and that you don't understand, not only from the scriptures, but also about life. There are a lot of things in 2016 that are confusing to us, that are complicated, that are hard to deal with, tough to navigate, or whatever. And if there's anybody out there who knows what's right, knows what's true, knows how to deal with it, knows how to handle it, knows how we should understand it, take it in, and push it back, it is Jesus himself. May we admit here today that if there is some confusion about Jesus, the problem's not Jesus, the problem is with us. J.C. Ryle commentating, commenting on this says, Satan indeed is the chief promoter of religious divisions. If he cannot extinguish Christianity, which he cannot do, he labors to make Christians quarrel with one another and to set every man's hand against his neighbor. None knows better than the devil, he says, that to divide is to conquer. Confusion about Jesus has caused people all over the place to begin to wonder if God is even real. How many times have you heard somebody say something like this? Man, I don't even know what to think. I mean, I've got friends that believe in this God, and I've got friends that believe in this God, and I've got people that don't even believe in God, and they all seem to be good people to me. I don't know what's right. Or my buddy here goes to the Christian church, and y'all are Baptist church. We've got a Methodist church over here. How do you know what's true? We hear these comments all the time. Listen, the, the effort of those who know God should be one who is trying to show that with God there is not confusion. Because with God there is not confusion. And so with us, we are to represent very clearly that Jesus is a good, clear, and simple understanding of God. Perhaps everything else has made it confusing, but when we look at Jesus, it is not. Paul writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. He says plainly, For God is not a God of confusion, but God is a God of peace. Those who truly know God know it to be smooth and peaceful. His burden, His light. He says God is not a God of confusion. We have here a misunderstanding of Jesus. Just look what we have. We have His family saying that He's out of His mind, and we have the, scri the scribes thinking that He's of the devil. And yet, you and I have gathered here this Sunday morning because we think he's the truth, he's the answer, he's the Savior. That's why we're here. And so we've got these different ideas about Jesus. There's confusion about Jesus in the world, no doubt. After their declaration that he is of Beelzebub, look at verse 23. He called them to him and said to them in parables, Jesus often did this. He teaches in a way that some can understand and some cannot understand. He teaches in, par in parables. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? And he's bringing a great principle before their eyes. If there's division in it, it's not connected, which we ought to understand. If there's division, there's not unity. We can't be opposed to each other and think that we're getting stronger. This does not work. And this is what he's going to raise. Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. We know that. That's life 101. That's military 101. Everybody knows that. That's church 101. We have to get along, okay? If you don't understand that we are stronger together, then there's a problem. If you don't understand the Bible's teaching on the need for unity, 
I'll never forget, and I have it written down in my Bible, Josh Womble, when he was preaching here from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, before he had moved away, makes this great statement as an emphasis on unity. He says, we don't have to live according to our rights. You have rights, but you don't have to live according to them. He says, we don't have to be upset when we have the right to be upset. He reminded us, we are dead in our sins. Now, if you want to assert your rights and show that you're upset and all of that, you can do that and you can prove that you're right, but at the cost of it or the expense of it is often division. It is okay for you to say, okay, for the strength of unity. Jesus is teaching the people here that once there starts to be division or, or opposition in, in a connected unit, we've got big problems. And they were saying that Jesus casting out demons had to be done because he, was, because he wasn't a part of them, that he must have been the devil. So they were so convinced that they were right that they saw something they weren't familiar with. It was somebody not in their group doing things of God. They recognized that Jesus was of God. You remember John chapter 3, that was Nicodemus' first words. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, he says, Teacher, we, we know that you're from God. Nobody can do what you do unless they're from God. So they, they were aware that Jesus had this godly element to him, but he's casting out demons, and they don't know anything about that. So they're, they're like, what's going on here? And it can't be that we're wrong. It can't be that we're confused. It can't be that we're acting like the devil with all this division, judgmental, uh, ungodly attitude. So here's what we're going to say. We're just going to call him the devil. And he's casting out the devil. So the devil's fighting the devil. That's what they're trying to say. It's foolish. It's confusing, truly. And if they'd have taken it at its word or at face value, if they'd have taken that he is, as John the Baptist said in chapter 1, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If they had taken that he was the fulfilled promises of the Old Testament who had come here to die on the cross for their sins, to bring clarity to their confusion, to bring peace to their troubled hearts, to bring uh, forgiveness to their guilt and their sins. If they would have taken all the stuff that they thought that they knew and processed it for what it truly is, it would have been very simple and not confusing but no 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 it is only by the grace of God that somebody will truly humble themselves and say I'm wrong it is only the power of God inside of you that you will humble yourself and say I'm wrong I was I was confused I didn't understand I didn't know what I was talking about I shouldn't have said anything I was out of line I was out of place I, I, I was in error there but they wouldn't do that and so they start to claim that he must be the devil. So Jesus answers back and says, no, come on. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. If a kingdom's divided, it's not going to stand. Verse 25, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Folks, Jesus here doesn't seem to be teaching on marriage and the family and moms and dads and children and, and, and on your homes. But you need to hear this. Verse 25, your house must be united. And if it won't be united, it won't stand. And enough with the wishful thinking that a divided house will turn out okay. We need husbands to love wives and wives to love husbands and fathers and mothers to love children and work like crazy to make that a strong unity. He's talking here to the religious scribes about the kingdom of God, if you will. But he makes a statement in verse 25 that applies to every house. 
If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And so we see home after home after home falling because it was preceded by division, division, division. Maybe we hear the words of our dear brother Josh Womble when he says, just because you're right, you don't have to be right. And just because you could get upset doesn't mean you ought to get upset. Keep loving, keep serving, keep sacrificing, keep humbling yourself and trusting in the Lord Jesus. Then he goes to verse 26. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's coming to an end. In other words, if what y'all are saying is true, then, then something's wrong with Satan. He's on his way out. He's dying. He's going down. And then he makes this strong statement in verse 27 that I want us to hear which I've made connection to when I've talked through Revelation here before, which was years ago. Jesus says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is alluding to the work that Jesus does when he comes, that Satan has no power against Jesus. I will build my church upon this rock of Peter's confession, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You remember this statement? We understand that Jesus is the one with all authority, and Satan will not be able to go against him. Jesus is alluding to this. In our passage here now, though, what Jesus is pointing out is that Satan is not divided against itself, and the way that we start to see Satan go down is when one stronger than Satan comes in and takes over. And he's kind of asking them, is this what you're seeing? We have confusion about Jesus. Again, we have the family thinking that he's out of his mind. We have the scribes thinking that he's the devil. As we look around in our world today, we have people thinking that. We have some people that would, that would kindly recognize that, that the religious people in the world are, are, are the good folks, right? We hear that sometimes. Have you ever heard somebody say, man, he's a good guy, man, he's a good church guy. Right? We just kind of assume that a, that a religious fella is a, is a good man. Some people think that way. Then we have other people on the total other end of the spectrum that would say, no, nah, religion is the whole problem in the world. We wouldn't have all the wars going on were it not for religion and for all these people claiming exclusivity and saying that, no, this is the only way or this is the only way or that this is wrong or this is wrong. It's, it's those type of people who make those claims that are the problem in the world today. And we have everything in between. We have church people that say, hey, there's nothing good in me and there's no chance in the world that any of you all are going to get to heaven for all the good that you've done apart from Christ. I think I say that every Sunday. And then we have people in the world who every time somebody dies, they say, man, he's in a better place because he was a good man. We, we seem to be so confused about Jesus. Well, is Jesus the Savior or is being, being a good person the Savior? We, we seem to be everywhere in between. There's a lot of confusion. I want to encourage you as an individual we know our church is moving in this direction, but I want to encourage you as an individual, as a leader in your family, that you would make your life's devotion to what is the truth. What does God say? I want you to measure, I want you to weigh how you're living and what you believe and what direction you're going based off what is the truth. Yes, the world offers a lot of confusion, but God gives answers. I'll never forget that verse in John 6.66. I've told it to you many times. 
I remember it because it's 666. It says that there was a great crowd of disciples following Jesus, and at that day, many of them turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus turns around and says to the others, y'all want to leave too? He didn't go chasing the ones walking away. He turned to the ones who hadn't left yet and he says, do, do you want to leave too? And Peter speaks up and says, where are we going to go? You're the one that had the answers. You're the one that has the answers. Folks, there is a lot of confusion about Jesus. But Jesus, praise the Lord, has spoken. Jesus, in John chapter 118, has explained God to us. If you are confused here today, or your heart is full of questions, I encourage you to go to the source. Look to the Word. That you would know what is true about Jesus. That you would have a peace that God brings and not confusion. Again, they were confused about Him, but for those who know Him, they see Him as the answer. And therefore, we have great confidence. And this is what my second point is. Not only is there confusion about Jesus, but there is confidence with Jesus. Keep going. Look at verse 28. Truly. This is the first time, listen to me, the first time in the Gospel of Mark that we hear Jesus saying the truly. We know that Jesus does that a lot, right? You read the Gospels and you hear truly or truly, truly. And Jesus say, hey, listen to me. Matter of fact, hey, I'll tell you something. Hey, here's the truth. You know, this is what Jesus is communicating. And this is the first time here in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus says truly. He says truly, I say to you. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Second point today is the confidence with Jesus. Folks, I know there is a lot of confusion and I know I get questions all the time and you do too. Is God going to forgive me of this sin? But I want you to hear again today that the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ is that whoever believes in him will be forgiven of all their sins. For God so loved the world that he killed Jesus on the cross for your sins. And if anybody anywhere would believe that, God would forgive them of all their sins. This is the good news. Whether you are a guilty, rightly so, criminal, being punished to capital punishment, being nailed to a cross, taking your final breath, if you will trust in Christ, God will forgive you of every sin, like the thief on the cross. If you are a terrorist and you have killed people and you have sought going throughout the world looking for Christian people so that you can kill them, God, on the road to Damascus, meets him face to face, looks Saul of Tarsus right in the eye and saves him, changes his life, and even says, you will be my chosen instrument that I will set apart to go and reach the Gentiles. This man himself murdered Christian people. God forgives him of all his sins. Whether you are, listen to me, full of sexual immorality, you've lost count with how many people you've slept with, the porn addiction is, is so bad it seems to be out of control. Lust dominates your daily thoughts. If you will turn to the Lord Jesus, he will forgive you of your sins. The Bible says that God shed his blood to wash away our sins. Only the blood of Jesus 
shed for us on the cross can make us clean. But don't you doubt for a second that it's able to. It is able to. When holy God turns his back on his holy son, God is able to pardon sinners. The apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. He identified himself as more sinful than you or me. He identified himself as more sinful than anyone and stood confident and strong that he had been forgiven of all his sins. He would make the great statement to to Timothy, for I know who I am, for I know who I have believed in. I know who he is. I know what he's done. And I know that in him there is the forgiveness of sin. J.C. Ryle, again, speaking on this, says, These words fall lightly on the ears of many people. Most people see no particular beauty in them. But to the man or woman who is alive to his or own sinfulness and deeply sensible of his need of mercy, these words are sweet and precious. All sins shall be forgiven. Do me a favor right now. Look, look to verse 28. I want you to see it in the word of God. At verse 28, right here, I want everybody looking down at the Bible. Verse 28, this is the word of Jesus Christ. He says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Does everybody see that? If you came here today burdened by your sins. If you came here today saying, I I just can't catch a a break. I I feel so guilty. I can't stop sinning. If you came here today knowing that you need forgiveness, I want you to hear that the Bible does not hesitate to say there is forgiveness for you. There is in Christ. Jesus died for that. This is the very message that Paul is preaching early in his ministry in Acts chapter 13 when he says, Acts chapter 13 verse 38, Let it be known to you therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed. If you read the book of Acts, as soon as the apostles began to start preaching, their very message was, you can be forgiven. No matter who they talked to. They would be in a temple to these religious leaders and say, hey, but you can be forgiven. If you recognize that you killed Jesus on the cross, your sins, God will forgive you of that. If you'll admit that you did the worst sin ever by killing him, God will forgive you. Or then they end up somewhere else where where they're not even religious people. They don't even have a God. Remember in Acts chapter 17, they have this sign up that says they're worshiping an unknown God. He says, you don't even know who God is. But I want to tell you this, you've sinned against God, the one true God, and he'll forgive you of that sin. I mean, the message of God is, I'll forgive you. There's no sins that are too bad. There's no sins that are too many. There's no sins that are too far. You can't be too bad as a kid to not be saved as an adult. You can't be too bad as an adult to not be changed at age 50 years old. There are no sins that are too much, too many, too bad. God will forgive you if you will trust in Christ. There is great confidence with Jesus. I mean confidence with Jesus. But lastly, as we get here to the very end, verse 29, there's a but at the end of verse 28 the beginning of verse 29 if you were to only read verse 28 and never connect it to any anything else you perhaps would walk away thinking some universalism that hey everybody's gonna be saved doesn't really matter all sins all blasphemies are gonna be saved and while there are a lot of people that believe that 
the Lord Jesus did not believe that. The Lord Jesus did not believe that. The Lord Jesus does not believe that. The Lord Jesus did not teach that. Jesus does not want us to believe that or think that. Jesus says all sins and blasphemies will be forgiven, but one, but one. Verse 29. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For as much as we can find clarity on our confusion about Jesus, and for as much as we can have some sweet, strong confidence with Jesus, the humble, sobering truth of the world today is that there is condemnation without Jesus. We're not to smile at this. We're not to laugh at this. We're to be convicted. What is the sin that will never be forgiven? To quote Jesus, it is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. What is the sin that will never be forgiven? It is blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. So you ask, okay, what is that? Earlier in the week, I believe it was probably Monday, I was reading the Bible to the boys at home, and I read them this passage, kind of leading up to it. I knew what would happen as soon as I read it. JJ says, all right, what's blaspheming the Holy Spirit mean? We hear it, and everybody knows that there is an unpardonable sin, and that it says, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Well, I want to explain I want you to think about what is the Holy Spirit and what does it do. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. You have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are the one God. The three make up the one God. All three equal together. All three one and the same. All three different but equal and same. All three the one true God. If you can, turn with me to John chapter 16. We're going to see Jesus talk about the Holy Spirit a little bit. Now the Holy Spirit was not there permanently dwelling in people while Jesus was there. This was important for Jesus to leave so that the Holy Spirit could come. John chapter 16, verse 7 says, this is Jesus teaching, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Look at, look at this, verse 8. Here's what the Holy Spirit does. And when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. The Holy Spirit has a job. And the Holy Spirit's work that he does in the world is pointing people to the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit, listen, convicts you of your sins. You've probably felt that before. Convicts you of your sins. And then shows you in your guiltiness, your need for forgiveness... And points you to the Lord Jesus Christ as the place to find forgiveness. This is the Holy Spirit's job. 
The Holy Spirit is real. It's in the world. It convicts you of your sins. In your conviction, you feel guilty before God, and then it points you. The Holy Spirit is constantly saying, hey, look to Jesus. Look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. Look at the empty tomb. Look at the work that Jesus does. Look at the hope and forgiveness that can be found in him. This is what the Holy Spirit is constantly doing. Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you go against that, there is no salvation for you. If you go against the Holy Spirit convicting you of your sins, Holy Spirit convicts you of your sins and you make an excuse or you avoid it or you run from it, then how are you going to be forgiven? The Holy Spirit says you're guilty. You say, no, I'm not guilty. How are you going to be forgiven? Holy Spirit says, you need to look to Jesus to get right. And you say, no, I don't need to look to Jesus. I'm a good person. The Holy Spirit's job is to convict you and point you to Jesus. To go against the Holy Spirit in blasphemy is to put yourself in a position where you can never experience the forgiveness of sins. In a simple way, think about it like this. Blasphemies are offenses directed at God, and sins are those things that we have done against people. Now, we can sin against God, too, certainly, but to, to, to make a difference between blasphemies and sins in this verse, it is an offense against God. Dr. Stein writes, Traditional Christianity, whether Lutheran, Reformed, Armenian, and so on, asserts that only through the work of the Spirit is saving faith possible. Thus, to blaspheme the Spirit's work, which seeks to lead a person to faith, is unforgivable in that it makes faith impossible. If you don't want to acknowledge that the Holy Spirit's convicting you, if you don't want to acknowledge that you are guilty before God, if you don't want to acknowledge that you need to run to Christ, if you don't want to acknowledge that you need to become a forgiven man through the Lord Jesus, if you don't want to acknowledge any of those things that the Holy Spirit's doing, you cannot be forgiven. John MacArthur commenting on this says, The singular use of the word sin indicates that a specific sin is in view. That of not believing in Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. This is the only sin, ultimately, that damns people to hell. Though all men are depraved, cursed by their violation of God's law, and sinful by nature, what ultimately damns them to hell is their unwillingness to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And I am totally mindful that here today, in the summer of 2016, there are not many people that agree. But I'd rather be against everybody else. And believing Jesus. Jesus knows what is not confusing about forgiveness and salvation. And we do well to sit before Jesus and hear him teach us. Do you remember in Romans chapter 8 verse 1, which was that fourth stop on that Romans road that we've been talking about lately? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember that verse? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's the confidence with Jesus. But there certainly is, unfortunately, condemnation for those who are not in Christ. Who will not come to Him. Who are too hard-hearted or strong-minded or proud. Let us be strong in believing that there is an eternal God... Therefore, also an eternal heaven 
and an eternal hell. Jesus here teaches us that if you will go against the Holy Spirit, he says in verse 29, you are guilty of an eternal sin. What a sobering thought. Is that you? Are you still refusing to become a Christian? Do you know some Christians that don't represent Jesus really well, and so you're really, really hesitant to be one? Do you know some churches that have totally failed in representing God, and so they've burned you so bad that you're not sure if you really want to do the church thing? Can I ask you to ignore the things that are confusing and pick up the words of Jesus and hear him say, you're guilty of an eternal sin or... All sins will be forgiven for those who trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. We'll close with this quote. Finally, if it be true that there is an eternal damnation, let us give diligent that we ourselves do not fall into it. Let us escape for our lives and not linger. Let us flee for refuge to the hope set before us in the gospel and never rest till we know and feel that we are safe. And never, never let us be ashamed of seeking safety. Of sin and worldliness and the love of pleasure, we may well be ashamed. But we may never, may we never need be ashamed of seeking to be delivered from an eternal hell. We don't want you to go to hell. Charles Spurgeon says that if people will be condemned to hell, may they have to leap over our bodies to get there. May you know today that with Jesus there is great confidence. Your sins can be forgiven. You can go home today knowing heaven awaits you if you'll believe in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Mark chapter 3. God, I hate the, I hate the reality that religion's so confusing in the world. We, we so desire to labor to help it not be confusing. We want to bring clarity to the picture of God. But Father, it's you that does it in the heart. So we ask, Lord, today that you would help. You would give us faith to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.